Well, drop me a beat. And we are back. This is the Fat Packs Podcast on the Beckett Podcasting Network. I'm your host, Eric, and this week's show is, of course, brought to you by the Collectible Card Club, Monster Breaks, and all of our phone guests are courtesy of Sparty Hawk on the Sparty Hawk Cash Hotline. What's going on, everybody? Hope you are having a great week. I am. Uh, want to let you know right up front, this is a double episode. This is going to be a long one, but I am absolutely thrilled with the content that we have in it. So I wanted to present it as is, and uh, we'll get we'll get to that in a minute. But I did want to let you know you're in for a long one today. So if you have hit play, thank you so much for uh, joining us. And I really hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Let's get into new products and new pricing so we can get to this huge, huge show that we have for you. Uh, First of all, new products. Man, it's been a a fun one Uh, on the new products front this week. We have some some football, some baseball, a little bit of everything, actually. We got uh, got the Panini basketball stickers, NBA stickers. Those are out. We have Panini Impeccable Football. That should drop tomorrow. Leaf Immortal Collection Soccer. That is out tomorrow as well. 2018 Historic Autographs Originals Baseball, 1930 Series 2. That's coming out tomorrow as well. And finally, Topps Gold Label Baseball, all coming out tomorrow, Friday the 12th. Um, the, the basketball stickers came out on the 10th, so they came out yesterday. Uh, that's that's a lot of new new product for you guys to intake. Uh, impeccable looks amazing uh, as it always does and immortal collection soccer from leaf is is that's what it is it's immortal it's it's uh just awesome to see the names that they have in that list want to give a shout out to leaf for the tennis product that they had dropped last week those the names on that on that checklist were incredible absolutely incredible that you just don't see uh autographs from every day all right uh new pricing wise we have Team Canada 2018-19 Team Canada Juniors is priced for you. Uh, Tim Hortons 18-19 Tim Hortons hockey cards are priced for you. Um, Luminance Baseball is priced for you. Thank you, Brian, for your work there. Um, then we have uh, Garbage Pell Kids. I'm going to get the name of this uh, set right because it is a it's horrible. It, what is it? Horrible. Yeah, there we go. Garbage Pell Kids. Oh, the horrible is now priced for you. And Topps Heritage Miners is also now uh, priced for you as well. Is it Bowman Heritage or Topps Heritage? It doesn't matter. It's Heritage. That's all you need to know. Um, all that is done for you, and I hope that you are enjoying that, uh, that enjoying that and helping you out with your uh, pricing needs. Now, uh, let's get to the show. Two huge guests, or three huge guests, as it were. Uh, Dan Severin, again, just an absolute fun, fun guy to talk to. Uh, one of the baddest men on the planet, but he is so soft-spoken. I mean, I, I guess that's the way to talk. He's he's uh he's he's knowledgeable. He knows what he's talking about when it comes to to fighting and 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 MMA and, and wrestling, and he knows all of that. He's very well educated. I'm not I'm not surprised at all because he you know the degree he carries from uh, Arizona State. Want to thank uh, Brett Lyons again for making that happen for me. Uh, Dan Severn is an absolute joy of an interview and i hope that you guys who are going out to the card show this weekend in saginaw will enjoy him 35 dollars for an autograph and a photo op please don't miss that secondly up are the scar brothers when we released our 30 teams for 30 weeks and we got to the cardinals i knew that there were only two guys that i wanted to talk to about it and it was <laughs> it was the scars and i'm so glad that uh they made time for me this week we, we broke down the entire lineup. There was a, a few discrepancies, but not too many. 
and we got through that. And then we talked about their, their upcoming shows, their podcasts that they're doing, uh, Hipster Ghost, which is their, their new album, and where you can catch them at next. Please enjoy this double episode. It's, it's a long one. Like I said, if you push play, you're going to be in for a long one. But it's a, it's a great one. Uh, we're talking cards and collectibles. We're talking fighting. We're talking uh, Ozzy Smith stories. You don't want to miss any of this. Please hang out and enjoy all of it. All right. With that being said, I'm going to get right to it. Coming up on the other side of this break is the beast, Dan Severn, one of the baddest men on the planet. Don't miss it, guys. Hang tight, and we'll be right back. This is Steve Brad from Beckett Authentication, and you're listening to the Fat Packs on Beckett Radio. All right, joining us next here on the show is a, a special treat. He is just, I'm just going to introduce him as one of the baddest men on the planet, and you'll understand why when we get into it. His name is Dan the Beast Severin, and he's joining us right now, courtesy of the Saginaw Sports Collectible Show, coming up this weekend where you can catch Dan signing autographs. I think I think it's fairly inexpensive too. I think it's like thirty bucks. You can go thirty five bucks maybe. You can go up there and get your picture and an autograph. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? I am doing fantastic, Eric. Thank you so much for making time for me this morning. I know it's early where you're at, uh, so uh, just just thanks for being available. No, no, no. It's uh, actually I usually start my day quite early, uh, and uh, it goes rather late into the night. But it's uh, only because I have still a lot of aspirations and goals of what I would like to accomplish. And well, you are a very accomplished uh, man as it as it is right now. So give us a little little background on your career, where it started, and where you are at today. All right. Well. I'll say that most people will probably only know me because I either climbed into a cage for uh, the cage fighting. I use that word cage fighting because only until, I'll say, 2005, six uh, forward was the, 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 the phrase mixed martial arts really coined at that point in time. Uh, the predecessor that started right off in 1994 was known as NHB, which stood for No Holes Barred. Right. Uh, the precursor, and most people just to be known as Ultra Fighting Championships, well, that is the best-known company, the first company in the, the world of uh, mixed martial arts at No Holes Barred. I've had the, the good fortune of working for four, all four different ownerships, and uh, I'll just say that the, the what, 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 what folks... What folks watch today, sorry about that. No worries. Uh, what folks watch today at Mixed Martial Arts has roughly 40, I think, uh, excuse me, yeah, 47 or 48 rules to it, whereas the predecessor, Doho's Bard, had two. Those being no biting and no eye gouging. So, end of the rules. Anything that your imagination could come up, you were good to go with. No weight classes, no time period, so there's no rounds. It's just continuous time until you uh, had had victory. And victory was secured by either knockout, chokeout, your man just laid there kind of unconscious of whatever form it, that, that it, it took, or your corner could throw the towel in, or the referee could stop the match if he felt like your corner wasn't doing, doing their job and you were just taking way too much punishment in the process. So that's where I cut my teeth on, but my history goes 
way back from there. Uh, I've been an amateur wrestler since 1969, and I'm probably one of the most accomplished uh, amateur wrestlers. It, it uh, you know, through my high school career, it, it paid uh, for my way to go to college. I went to college at a full athletic scholarship for amateur wrestling. And I mean, really, just to, to summarize it, I have uh, over 100 state, national, and or international titles and or records to my credit. And you will be very hard-pressed, because I, I, I ask anyone, I go, find me somebody else, either living or deceased, that can make that claim. And I have, have yet to have anyone come back to me. That is very impressive, sir. Very, very impressive. Um, my next question for you is, what... I've obviously after your amateur career, you're, you're very you're very polished. You're you're very great great at what you do. What makes you want to take that next step and, and go professional? Was it money? Was it the challenge? Was it um, just something new? What, what what possessed you to go further in your career with mixed martial arts? Well, I mean the uh, actually that's great because I, I'll say that the good good question is how does one start because you know now nowadays you have young athletes that are watching, say, like Big Smash Rush with, with their, 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 parent, their father or something like that, and, you know, either, you know, it's one of two routes. It's either dad living vicariously through their son or daughter because, that, you know, it, it, uh, the, the females did not come into the Big Smash Rush scene until, again, until a little bit later into the mid-2000s. Uh, did the females uh, come into play? But it's like anything else. Data White, the, the president uh, at the time, you know, made a comment that you know that they would never have females. I go, boy, don't ever say that because it's just like <laughs> boxing. You know, it's going to eventually happen. Right. It's just, it's just you know, when, when uh, you can't that, that that's that's anyone's uh, type of guess. But you know, the women <laughs> women matches are actually much more exciting. They don't tend to uh, tippy toe around there as much as what what the guys <laughs> do at times. They tend to get right after it. So they're they're some of the most exciting matches to watch. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think, what was your original question that you asked me there, Eric? So, I, kind of, I kind of deviated here once again. <laughs> you find I tend to do that at times. So what what made you want to go ahead and go oh, further with your Eric. career? Okay. I, I literally, what I was looking at, I, we would not be speaking today had everything gone through the way I was planning out my life. I, I, I'm a very structured individual, been structured my entire life. A lot of that kind of stems from growing up on a farm, of having responsibilities thrust upon you at a very young age, because when you got up in the morning, you had to do your chores sure. before you were taken care of, and you had to do that all before either walking, uh, at least during the wintertime, it was nicer that that uh, Bob would uh, drive us up to the corner because it's a half-mile walk to get up to the corner where, where the uh, the bus would, would, would pick us up. So it was you know, definitely a lot of structure early on that uh, kind of helped morph me into uh, you know, ha- you know, the, the scheduling and stuff like that that I do. But my goal was you know, I had achieved so many different things in the sport of amateur wrestling you know, there, there's like the ultimate goal to me. I had set my sights on was an Olympic gold medal. Okay. And my, my whole goal was that I was going to retire in 1984 after winning the Olympic gold medal. And but things kind of happened through 
through the, the Olympic trials, I end up very, very, very controversial what happened through there. It was the first, first time ever that the uh, matches were videotaped. And if you felt like there was an injustice that took place, you were able to file a complaint. Oh, wow. And uh, during the course of mine, we went back and forth. My opponent beat me once. I beat him uh, once. And then in, in the finals, the scoring was wrong. So that in the, in the, in the final, uh, final uh, like under one minute, they had scored the, the score wrong to where now I'm losing and so now I have to be the aggressor and go after my opponent. Mm-hmm. Whereas had it been the other way around, which which is the way it should have been, uh, it just changed a lot of the psych, psychology and the complexities of a match. And it was ironic because off the record, everybody agreed with me. But on the record, they went the other route. And I had to sit there at the games because they, you know, they used me as a practice partner. Mm-hmm. And I was... I uh, <laughs> Eric, I had a few issues about this. So the first time I actually worked out my part uh, was with a guy that was uh, uh, seated ahead of me. Well, I heard him, uh. and and they're like, "Okay, uh, Dad, you don't get to play with nobody else here right now. We're going to send you over with the heavyweights. Is that the two hundred twenty pound weight class?" And so now they send me over to the heavyweights. And this was again during a time where the heavyweight weight class wasn't regulated. So I'm working out with guys with, that are 420 pounds, 375 pounds, 350 pounds, and I'm the 220 pounder. So it was a lot of fun. Oh, I, Eric, it was still for me. And Lord, I won't say the fun. I had so many issues because of being uh, done wrong that I, I actually had the heavyweights complaining that they're like, don't take it out on us. We're <laughs> not the guy who screwed you over. Wow. You know, so, uh, you know, I'll just say that That's I, I take that situation and I turn a bad situation to good. It's the thing that helped motivate me to go on and to put forth a lot more effort into other areas. And I even, even, even the Olympic coach at the time, Dan Gable and myself, we were, we had, we had a big major argument actually at the Olympic Games itself, just outside the stadium, stuff like that. And I basically, you know, uh, he more or less was, was like, you know, what is your problem? And I'm like, yeah, you know what my problem is. I said, I was done wrong. And, 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 you know, you got this different agenda. So, but it was that years later where I continued on and to do things and to uh, pursue, you know, professional wrestling and mixed martial arts and everything of that nature, it just kind of kept kept playing on going for me. And he's like, well, he goes, he says, you are probably the most time-proven athlete I have ever met. And, you know, they hear someone like that say that. So I get, you know, basically, I'll say we, we amend, we amend the offense, but at the same token, that is one of those things that eludes my credentials. You know, to say that 100-plus state, national, or, and, or international titles and records Eric, nobody's close to me. Nobody's close to me when it comes to that. And it's not, it's in three, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, three different categories of wrestling alone. Uh, average wrestling, freestyle wrestling, and Greco, and for your, uh, you know, for listeners and stuff like that, Greco and freestyle are the uh, two styles that are competed in the, 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 the annual world championships or every four years for the Olympic Games. Right. 
the United States is the only country that we don't, in our high schools, our junior highs, our elementaries, our, our youth programs, we all, we do folk style. We're the only country that does folk style. The rest of the world does either freestyle or Greco, so that by the time you are a college graduate, you're right around that 21, 22 years of age, and now you're really, your only options now, you've been doing folk style your entire life, now your your only opportunity to represent the United States is in freestyle or Greco, so we're almost like kids again. I mean, it's still both out to taking people down, but there are always certain changes in the rules that if you've been working with them for a number of years, oh, you understand how to utilize them. Otherwise, you don't. And we tend to, we have a hard time scoring medals at both the World Championships and the Olympic Games. We usually always place a little bit, but nowhere near uh, what uh, counterparts such as like Russia has dominated the sport of wrestling primarily, but there's other countries formerly of the Eastern Bloc that uh, do quite well. Sure, sure. They uh, that Eastern Bloc that those are some bad dudes, man. So, but you, you yourself, you have over a hundred over a hundred career victories, uh, nineteen losses, and just a few draws. I want to talk about your professional wrestling career. Can we do that for a moment? By all means, you bet. I, I'm, I'm reading here, and I want to make sure that it's right. Uh, were you trained by Al Snow? Is that correct? Yes, it is. Can you uh, can and, you share any there, story? There's a great there's a great story to it. Um, at the time, I was working at, at that time. I was working for the Michigan Wrestling Club. I, I coached, you know, after after wrestling at Arizona State. At, at, I should say upon uh, graduation. Uh, I had two more years working towards a master's program while, while being the assistant wrestling coach to Bobby Douglas at Arizona State. A job opportunity came to be, be a assistant wrestling coach at Michigan State University. And, and the Big Ten is the heartbeat of wrestling. So, And I, and I get to go back to my, my uh, uh, alma mater's home. And I get to go back to uh, uh, Michigan. So I take, take the job uh, after being there for a couple of years. Uh, then I take the head coach job for the Michigan Wrestling Club. So the president of the Michigan Wrestling Club, his name is uh, the name was Dennis Kasperwitz, but he also was a professional wrestler by the name of Denny Cass. Okay. And all, all, right around all around this 1992 time period, 92 started to, you know, started to bleed towards 1993, uh, there was... Uh, a new rule that came down from the United States Olympic Committee that allowed athletes to be both amateur and professional simultaneously as long as you were not involved in high school athletic programs or collegiate programs because you'd still be regulated by high school athletic association rules or the NCAA rules. Well, I was already well past my collegiate eligibility so I could have my cake and eat it too. I could still shoot to make, you know, Olympic team, world teams, things of that nature, but I could be a professional wrestler. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> so I, I basically, I started trading into that. There's even, there's even more of a story there is that is I left Michigan State really to, I was doing two jobs simultaneously. <laughs> that was when I was working for the Michigan Wrestling Club. But when I left Michigan State, I left it for a job opportunity. And I was uh, living in Owasso, Michigan, and I was commuting 
uh, daily to Albion, Michigan, which is like 82 miles one way. Oh, wow. And I was working in quality control for a stamp and a fortune plant, and, it, and things were going good. Well, the guy, I, I was there for basically about a year, and the guy who hired me there went on to bigger and better things in Coldwater, Michigan. So now he's like, I want you to head up my quality control program, stuff like this. He's offered me more money, uh, profit sharing, all the things that a young married guy uh, wants to hear. And I'm like, well, how much time do I have to think about this? He goes, two weeks. Okay. And in two weeks, in a, in a two week time, I sold a home, I bought a home, I went to work, and, in that, and at the end of the first week, I did not have a job. Oh, no. <laughs> so you mix this in to all the other stuff I'm having. It's kind of going, and this was a really bad recessionary slash ver, on the borderline of the Depression type era in the United States. And I even went to a friend of mine, an attorney friend, I go for some guidance and, and, and see if I had any kind of recourse. And this is when the at-will clause would just start to come in, that companies can let you simply go at-will, no rational reason whatsoever. And he goes, you don't have a leg really stand out. He says, you need, you need to sign up for unemployment. I go, I go, I've never, I don't know how to do that. I've never been unemployed. And I, and, and, and I, I actually refuse to. I, I'm like, that's when this professional wrestling rule had just changed. I'm like, man, I got, I, I've got to, I've got to keep, got to keep the roof over, over my family's head. I got to keep food at the table. So it's kind of like, I went after this, this, uh, professional wrestling thing very, very aggressively. On top of all that, Eric, I saw a flyer for Tough Man Contest. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I did not know what a Tough Man Contest. All I know is first prize was $1,000, and I needed $1,000. <laughs> I, I entered this contest, and literally, you should I wish there was some type of video footage of this, because the people that were laughing at me, because everybody there... These were guys that actually had done some kind of boxing trainer or had been, you know, maybe an amateur boxer or something like this. And Tough Man is not exactly eloquent boxing whatsoever. It's, it's a brawlish type of thing. There are three one-minute uh, rounds with, with uh, I think, 16 gloves, and you just go go crazy, really, for, for these three rounds. So as I'm walking out there, I said, these guys are wearing, like, boxing trunks, athletic trunks. I'm walking out there wearing an amateur wrestling singlet. <laughs> I wear my amateur shoes, my hair a whole lot darker, my mustache that much more bolder, darker, and I don't know how to hold my hands. I'm actually holding my hands like you, you would have thought that I was somebody from the past, and I'm going to engage in the eloquent style of boxing here right now. You know, <laughs> the, the rules, of, the clean bedded rules of eloquent boxing. And, you know, I got this big 300-plus pounder because they only ever, they only ever ran a tough bed. Two weight classes, under 175 pounds and over 175 pounds. So here I am with this big galoot that's 300 plus pounder. He's throwing haymakers. I'm like, I don't know what's going to. I, I basically I run it and it kind of I, I slam into the sky, and I've got to go back. I've got to go back to it. I'd already done some some training. We're, we're, we're inside of a professional ring that they're using as a boxing ring, and I push it backwards knowing that we're about to hit these ropes, and I know what's going to happen next. It's going to be like a big rubber band. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to bow out here pretty quick, and then all that weight moment is going to come right back at me. So as I push that out, the moment I start to feel it come right back into me, I lock them into an amateur body lock, and I did a, a move called a, 
belly-to-belly souple where I, I, I launched him through the air, and the crowd exploded because that had never been done. <laughs> and this guy, he, he launched, he skids across, I mean, he's all discombobulated as he hits, and Art Door, the creator of Tough Man Heavy. He looks like Wolfman Jack. He he grabs a microphone and he's like looking all around and, 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 and the reaction of the crowd. They looks right back looks right back up at me and holds the mic up to his phone. And he goes, Well, throw him again and, and it's like, Wow, game on. Okay, I could do that. <laughs> and so I always tell people that, you know, it was for all the wrong reasons how I migrated into things. There comes out that cliche that they say that necessity is the mother of invention. Well, no, necessity was the father of invention. I had to I had to keep a roof over my, my, my family's head. I had to keep food on the table. My, my, my children and wife really didn't know half of what I ever did because I kept them in the dark. I was like, well, Dad's got to go out for wrestling. Even when I started doing the professional wrestling, I was like, well, Dad's going to go out for wrestling this weekend. When I did my, 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 very, my very first ultimate fighting championship was UFC number four. And even then I said... Uh, I'm just going to go off and wrestle this weekend because uh-huh. of why I did it. It's, it's kind of like that, that that little gray area of lying because I'm like, well, based upon my skills, that is really all I'm going to be able to do is I'm going to uh, go out and wrestle. I, I trained for five days, an hour and a half a day with El Snow and a couple other professional said, wannabes, and they had one old pair of boxing gloves. It was literally, I should have had video footage of all of this because it was slapstick comedy because these guys... <laughs> They, they, you know, they're trying to punch, kick, and do whatever submissions they could do, and I'm just trying to I'm avoid being struck. I'm, I'm getting clinches. I'm just using amateur wrestling techniques, throwing them down, taking them out, and then once we hit the ground, I'm just putting on amateur wrestling techniques and, and turning them illegal now because it, it was all good to go and making the screamer squawk, and that was my training camp. So literally, it was a lot of comedy to the point that they're like they're throwing the gloves at each other, like no, you have to, no, it's your turn. They're like oh, they're, you know, the heck with you, I'm, I'm not. A, you know, it was it was nobody. I don't think there, anyone else could say that. Yeah, you trained for five days, an hour and a half a day in a slapstick comedy type setting, and then go out there and get the results that I did. Even when I showed up, it's only because of my amateur wrestling background, and that's really what's what set me apart. And, and what I, I say one of my biggest honors is the fact that I am the guy now responsible for unleashing the floodgates of amateur wrestlers that now invade the scene. And when you look at the sport on a worldwide level, eight or nine out of the top 10 guys per weight class, what are their original beginnings? They're amateur wrestlers. Not a guy that's under the bench, but a guy that accomplished something in high school or collegiately or on an international level because with that accomplished athlete, you have a work ethic and a mindset equal to none. That's awesome. That is an incredible story. I want to ask you one more question about wrestling, then then we're going to get to collectibles. Uh, I very vividly remember an angle in the WWF where the NWA was invading the WWF and you came to the ring hoisting the NWA title, the UFC title, and there was another title as you took on Owen Hart that night. Was that planned? Did, Did Vince okay that? Did you do it by yourself? Tell me about that angle. Well, no, the, the, the angle was already in place. I, I, I don't know if it had anything to do with it. If they were, 
I mean, I was actually in talks with both WCW and the WWF, you know, now known as WWE, right. uh, at, at the same time. Uh, and I'd say that, that uh, WCW was a little bit more of the aggressor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I, I met with Eric Bischoff a couple times. But it's kind of like going, but I was, I was looking for a very unique type of contract, and the WWF agreed, really agreed to my terms. Okay. I, I did. I did not want to be a full time professional wrestler for them because I still had other things I wanted to do. So the, the average professional wrestler wrestled 187 dates, and I think I gave them 60 dates. Mm. But I was the, the the biggest key there uh, is that I was non exclusive to them, Eric. I mean, it was like Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, uh, all, all these, none of these guys could work for nobody else. But I could come and go. That's it's the same way for the NWA. I was not exclusive to the NWA. I was not exclusive to the UFC. So I literally I had but then I was I was not I was not that twenty some year old guy though either. I mean that you know, Vince actually was shocked when he found out how old I was. Really? Yeah, you know, what, what the contract was always signed I'm in the office. I, I did a lot of my talking to Jim Ross. Okay. So Jim Ross, Mr. Command, a couple of us were inside the office, so you know, the contract's all been signed, you know, slapping on, on the back, handshakes are taking place, so it's a few other questions and answers that, that all of a sudden fits out of the building. He's like, well, how old are, are you? And I, I'm like, well, 48. And, and he looks over at Jim Ross and goes, oh, and he goes, Jim, he goes, who's our oldest rookie ever? And Jim just points right back over me. He goes, man. <laughs> but I, I did not look my age, nor did I act it, but then it's like, it's like the, the cage mighty clear. I started that at just before turning 37 years of age. You don't start a cage fighting career at 37. You retire from it. Right. And and people go say, oh, they're like, dude, you were really, you are incredible back in the day. I go, I go no, no, no. That, that was called Dan Severn Residue. Uh-huh. I go, if you really want to see me back in the day, I go, from 1984 to 1986, like I said earlier, when I was working things out with my issues of being denied, oh, I was a monster. I would have gone against anything and everything if it would walk out on the man. I would have gone against Godzilla himself, <laughs> and Godzilla would never stood a chance because I was I had been done wrong, and I was not going to let anything ever be that close again. And I even ended a few guys' career just by pushing down for all of legal techniques, but knowing that the human body only bends so many different ways. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> that's very true. Uh, I have I have a couple of listener questions for you, if you don't mind, sir. Sure. Uh, sure Ty- Tyler Murphy, uh, at Tyler Murphy, wants to know, past or present, what would be your dream fight? Well, a, a dream fight? Yeah. Well, I, well, a lot of people, well, well, first off, I mean, a lot of people have brought up, uh, you know, Brock Lesnar was using uh, the term uh, the beast as well. A lot of people say, well, what do you think about Brock Lesnar? Come up the term. I go, I used to just say that, well, being involved in the wacky world of professional wrestling, and you look at boxing or, or almost any other sports, you know, that, that little, that nickname has been utilized a great deal for many, many athletes. I said, the Beast moniker has been used on hundreds of athletes prior to me, and they will be utilized for hundreds of more after me. I go, but the biggest difference is 
I did not make up my moniker. It was given to me by the legendary NFL Hall of Famer, Jim Brown. Oh, wow. He was he was one of the play-by-play commentators for probably half a dozen shows. And, 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 and in his words, he, the first, he goes, I didn't think that much of you, Dan, when I first met you. He says, out of all the fighters, you're the only guy that showed up wearing a sports jacket, a tie, wearing your glasses. And he goes, I could tell you're, you're the intelligent man just by, you, you, you're rather soft-spoken. He goes, he goes, but he goes, at the same time, he goes, I thought this big guy is about to, to, to walk into this cage fight world and just have his world turned upside down. He goes, watching you morph between Dan Severn's sports jacket and tie glasses. And then transition into this guy as I walk in this cage was like watching Clark Kent morph into <laughs> Superman. He goes, "How do you how do you turn it on like that?" And I'm like, a "Jim Brown has asked me a question like that." I mean, I got I got giddy like a little girl. There. I'm thinking, "Gosh!" I mean, because I watched Jim Brown when I was in high school when he was running. You know, in my words, uh, he was the most punishing running back in the the game. He didn't run around people. He ran over people. Right. And, he, and he retired at such a young age. And had he played for uh, a couple more years, no human being would, would have ever touched his rushing record. So I always tell people, that's where I ended up getting my moniker from, was from Jim Brown. That's awesome. So that's a great endorsement right there. And, uh, and, and again, it just it, the nickname The Beast has a lot of negative connotations. And anyone that really knows Dan Sever knows I am the furthest thing from being a negative person. I'm a very positive person. So I had to come up with something that I could live with as the beast because Dan the Pussycat Severed doesn't sell tickets. <laughs> right. <laughs> but but uh, Dan the Beast Severed sells tickets. So the word the uh, T-H-E stands for Dan Severed. I'm a teacher, humanitarian, and I'm an educator. And literally, I do have an education degree from Arizona State University. So as I say, yeah, I go, it's kind of ironic because I started my amateur career in 1969. I started teaching it by 71. By 1981, I actually got a sheepskin that says, hey, you're a teacher. I just got a smile when I received it. I think, well, you're about a decade behind the, 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 the block time. But again, the moniker of the beast, teacher, humanitarian, educator. And my message to young people is beast. To okay. believe in yourself, to educate yourself, to adjust your everyday attitude, to study hard, and then to teach others because you can't take it with you. Share in the wealth of knowledge. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing that you, the way you flipped that and made it a, an acronym that works for you that, and, oh, anyone, and, and a strong and message. Anyone, and anyone that knows me, Eric, knows that I don't simply say mere words. I live by by what I say. I mean, it, it, it's surprising because your listeners are probably saying does this guy ever shut up? Does he have too much co- coffee, <laughs> caffeine products this morning? And the reality is, I am usually a very quiet person until asked a question. When, mm. when you ask me a question, well, I'll give you an answer, probably a very thorough answer, but it's, uh, I, I, I'm, I don't like when I, I see what's happening with a lot of these athletes, what they're doing, especially at mixed martial arts. You know, I don't know if you, if you saw what took place just even this last this past weekend, with this uh, Conor McGregor versus uh, Habib, uh, it's hard to pronounce his last name, but what a what a fiasco! How it ended uh, with uh, almost 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 a full scale riot taking place. But 
you know, our security was able to get these stuff to real quick, but we still don't know what are going to be the repercussions, what kind of sanctionings, what kind of fines are going to be levied, but it's just showing no class here amongst these athletes. That was a question I wanted to ask you, actually. As as a Hall of Famer and an ambassador of the sport, in, in, in a sport that really had a lot of black eyes at its, at its early beginnings and, and it's grown to something very respectable now, when you see something like that that happened this weekend, it, does that just piss you off and, and, and really, does it set the sport back? I, I was, I was, I was, ang- I was probably a little bit more angry at Habib. Okay. And, and only and only the reason of, of of this is that Conor McGregor has he has utilized his mouth as a way to do things. The only way that that Conor really stepped over the boundary because you got to realize, go go back to a Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was a great smack talker, but he did it in a very in a, in a way that you know rhyming. He made you know. You know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. That's why they call me Muhammad Ali. I, but he just he had all kinds of cool uh, little rhematic type of things where he, you know where he would be, he's going to tell his opponent what he's about to do to him. You know, I'm going to take you out three and, and things of this nature. But he did it in a way that wasn't real confrontational. And what you know, Conor McGregor, his match before that, he throws uh, some type of uh, a dolly into a bus. It, it hits a window, breaks a window. Several athletes, uh, you know, have lacerations or, or uh, have, have mental issues and they can't compete on the card. I've, there's, there's, some of this stuff is kind of getting just a little too out of hand. And I look at who's really at fault here for this. Well, two people, first off. First off, you've got a company. Open Funny Championship, that is your show. Mm-hmm. Above all else, it is your show, your credibility. Take care of your business. Take care of your problems. Now, athletic commission is phase two. Athletic commissioners, state of Nevada, do your job. Now, now again, I'm going to deviate here once again. I was invited. I was invited at one point in time to the Michigan State Athletic Commission to help them put together rules and regulations for the amateur level of mixed martial arts. I had already been, I had my own MMA company going at that time. I did pro-level events, but the rules differed for amateurs. You know, and, and, and they asked me, well, why, why do you make the difference in rules? I go, amateurs are, are what? They're, they're just beginning journeymen in this industry. I go, I, I don't want to have any knees to the head. I don't want any elbows to the head. You know, I, I, I'm just, I'm trying to protect. I always refer to the head as the pumpkin. I go, I'm here to protect the pumpkin <laughs> in the process. And, and, and I, I go, and I had this all put in place. So the state, of, the state of Michigan calls me in, and I meet with them over the course of, of two days. Going through, and really towards the middle of the second day, that they actually said, well, Dan, we've, we've basically come to a conclusion that we're going to sh- we're going to shelf this these amateur rules, and I I got I closed up my my folder. I said, "Well, that's that's fine if that's what you guys want to do." I go, but I guess all I need to know now is 
who do I send my bill to? <laughs> and they're, and they're like, well, what, what? I, go, I go, I go, you guys are all employed by the state of Michigan. You guys asked me as a professional to come in here and help you put rules and regulations together. I said, who do I send my bill to now? I have fulfilled my obligations. Whether that you guys fail to want to move forward on this, that's on you. Sure. And then they're like, they're like, they're like looking at each other like, well, why not stuff like that? And I'm like, I don't want your money. I go, I want you guys to do the to do the right thing by these athletes. I said because this is the wild wild west right now. There's only regulation on the pro level of this, and more people are going to get hurt on the amateur level, hurt and or killed because you're going to realize it was still those same rules that that all these amateurs uh, events were being held the same way as the pro. The only two rules, no play, no ideology. And you had, you had some you have some pretty evil people that were jumping in there because they're looking at gosh, you know, I, I basically I could kill somebody without ever violating the rules of you know, biting someone or, or sticking a finger in an eye socket, I got you. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of going, it, it's, uh, so, uh, again, I'll just, going back to, there, there is a, a lot of different plays, but I go, let's be the adult here, and who's, who's really, the, it's the ultimate fighting championships, you have a reputation, and this is what you want to turn into this, this three-week circus, it's literally, it's, it's morphing more and more into professional wrestling. <laughs> right. Uh, and I always tell people I've been involved in the two worst industries ever. Professional wrestling is, without a doubt, the absolute worst industry I have ever been involved in. And then there's mixed martial arts. And fast forward to today, they're almost interchangeable. Wow. That's, that's eye-opening. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it's sad, but see, I, I know this walking into it, so, you know, I... For, for example, and I was kind of smile about this one, this past weekend there was a show in Delaware. And this group had asked me to come aboard as their matchmaker, and I did sort of uh, help some of this. We had, we, had, we had agreed about price, stuff like that, way back when. Well, basically less than 10 days out, and I never had a contract. Yeah, I, I deal with people most of the time. I go, the two big, what, what does contracts really mean? I mean, in, in, in reality, I hate, to, I hate to say this, but contracts nowadays, um, it, 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 it basically, oh, I, I'm old school. You should be able, I, I should be able to look you in the eye, I should be able to shake your hand, and we should be able to do things. Even when I'm in the office with, with Vince, and we we're basically coming to terms, he's like, well, do you, he says, how do I do this? Do I shake hands? He says, you want me to write it out on a napkin? I said, and I said, right to Vince, I go, Vince, as much as I would like to believe people's words anymore, let's put it on paper. There you go. There you go. Because I just, I, I know, that's why I have got such a good reputation in, in the industry. You could take my, my word to the bank. Because I'll, I'll stand by my word. I've, I've, I've driven, <laughs> I made it to places for appearances like this, come hell or high water. There was one time I had to do a, a wrestling clinic up in, uh, I think, Sault Ste. Marie, and this is during the wintertime. And as I'm driving, I mean, there, there was such a bad blizzard of a storm that hit. As I'm driving up, I, I literally, when I say I'm the only person on the road, I'm the only person on the road. Wow. And as I get to, as I get to Mackinac Bridge, they had just, they had just shut the bridge down just prior to me getting there, and I had to beg and plead with the attendant, let me go across. 
And as and they, they allow me to go across, I go across. There are such heavy gusts of wind. I literally, I, I drive across, and the wind is blowing me sideways. And I'm thinking, I wonder if it's going to flip me right off, off this bridge right now. I go, and I'm not exactly a good swimmer. And <laughs> who cares? Who cares about the swim? Well, I survived the fall, uh, hitting, hitting whatever and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, it just, you know, that, but, you know, that's just goes to show you that, I mean, I've, made some, some drives, stuff like that. When I say I'm going to be someplace, oh, I'll be there. That's awesome. Come hell or high water, I'll be there. And, and I write part on, on that one thing there was, it turned out to be opening day of deer hunting season. And up in the Upper Peninsula, I mean, that is a sacrilegious day. It was, we had <laughs> nobody that showed up to the seminar, so. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, uh, let, let's let's start to wrap things up here. I really appreciate your time. I want to mention again that you are going to be appearing this weekend, this coming weekend, at the Saginaw Sports Car right. Show. Uh, $35, you can meet and greet with a photo op. What can fans expect when they come and, and meet Dan Severin this weekend at the Saginaw Sports Car Show? Well, I, I'm hoping that they'll have at least a couple tables for me to sit on up. You, you will be seeing four of the most recognizable belts in the world. Three from the uh, from the uh, Ultimate Fighting Championships, and, and these are all three that were still won during the the No Holes Barred era, and also a professional belt uh, from the NWA. Uh, this this particular NWA belt was made special for me and was presented to me by Lou Fez himself. Very nice. I got a chance to to meet and know Lou on several occasions. I first met Lou over in Japan. And he was the president of the Cauliflower Alley Club, uh, Cauliflower Alley being for the cauliflower ear that most professional wrestlers and, and boxers had. And uh, he was, uh, I, you know, unbeknown to me, I, I'd only been to uh, just maybe three or four times ever to the Cauliflower Alley banquet. I mean, and, and, and that organization goes back quite a, quite a few years. And one of the the the, uh, the president of the NWA, he says, uh, Danny goes, you, and he goes, I can't tell you why. He said, but you really do need to be at the Cauliflower LA Banquet, you know, this this year. So I ended up getting right there. And, and then, then, then as Lou was up there, he just said, we have a, one special presentation. And he goes, I, goes, I, met, this, <clears throat> I met this young man first in Japan and stuff like this. I listened to a story and stuff like that. And the boy starts going into that thing. I echo. I, I should have met the I, I should have met the same guy because I've been in all, all the same <laughs> same place to say he's describing that all of a sudden he's like, Dad, come on up here and I'm like going, What? And he looks like Dad you can <laughs> So I hit on up there but so I'll have four of the most recognizable belts, but then I'll have a slew of of eight by tens, T shirts, collector cards, uh even other stuff that will be simply on display as nostalgia because it's uh as I tell people, I started my amateur wrestling career in 1969, so when it comes to collectibles, I, I, I actually have a number of collectors right now that they want stuff from me. They're sure. like, you know, do you have this? I go, I, I go, I actually have every outfit from my Ultimate Fighting days. Uh, I've got, uh, you know, I've got the two different pairs of wrestling shoes I wore. They're like, and, and they look at me, because most people don't realize you can't wear shoes. Oh, yes, you could. Mm. I I wore shoes. I, I I used to wear shoes all the time. The rule was, if I wore a pair of average wrestling shoes, I was not allowed to kick or stomp. And I'm like, I don't do that anyway. Sure. But I want to wear I want to wear my shoes because I just knew that it would give me a little bit better traction if I'm trying to shoot in on a lake or something like that. Because you know, vinyl and a little bit of sweat 
boy, that makes a slippery uh, surface. Right. So I realized that up until the point that they said you could no longer, even like the taping of my hands. I Only on two occasions was I mandatorily mandated to tape my hands. And I go, what's the bare bones minimum? You know, like, well, I mean, they're like, they're all looking at each other like, well, uh, they're kind of making it like, well, at least one piece of gauze and one piece of tape around your hand. So I put one piece of uh, gauze, one piece of tape. I go, I said, is that is that going to satisfy what you're looking for? And they're like, look, man, well, we're like, yeah, but what good's that going to do? Because literally, as I'm shoving my hand in the glove, it's falling off because that's not going to help you. I go, what part of I don't want a tape or gauze on my hands at all? That's and they're like, but you can break it. I go, I'm a grappler. I'm a wrestler. Right. When, when, when you take your hands all up like this, you have very limited mobility of your hands. Sure, you're, it's going to protect your knuckles from being punched, but that's not my forte. My forte was my wrestability. Ironically, you know, Eric, when I, I, when I went to this, I only ever expected to do one event back in 19... 94, I only plan on doing one event. Well, one event went just fine. Let's do event number two. Mm-hmm. Did good. One year, five year, ten years. And my final, I mean, literally, I had a 20-year career. In my final couple years, when I started realizing that I'm older than most of my opponent's fathers, <laughs> I said, you know, and, and, I, and I could always start seeing that my skill sets are slowing down. In my mind, my mind saying, move, 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 move. But by the time the wire goes from my mind to my body, my body's going, okay. That's not a good combination because <laughs> getting, you know, when, when, you, when you lose, when you lose in mixed martial arts, you're taking physical damage. And even, even now, fast forward to today, when's the last time, other than Conor McGregor, when was the last time you actually ever saw an MMA uh, participant actually tap out? Yeah, they all just pass out, right? <laughs> no, no, no. What they, what they okay. do is they, they're waiting for referee stoppage. Right, They'll right. be down there, and, and literally, the, 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 whoever has got them down is just teed off left and right because they're just, you know, they're seeing more and more opportunities and waiting for referee stoppage. And I'm thinking, do you think, in my mind, I'm thinking, uh, do you think you're saving face because you didn't tap, tap out. out, the referee stopped the match, and that makes you, uh, you know, a tough guy? I'm thinking, Jesus, Pete, that referee saved your life. I go, what you don't understand, and a lot of these young guys don't understand, what type of damage that they are taking now is going to haunt them later in life. Right. Boxing is a great one to look at when you look at, you know, when they talk about boxers becoming punch drunk. Well, the same attributes are coming forth now in big martial arts. Guys that have been there and they're long enough that they no longer can hold down jobs. They're on social security benefits and things of that nature. And I, I know a lot of these guys. A lot of these guys were from my era. That uh, you know, now that they, they can't, you know, like, like for example, uh, Big Daddy Gary Goodrich. He's uh, you know Canadian, and, and he's basically on Canadian's welfare system because he's, he's, he can't hold a thought pattern. He uh, 
you know, and, and, and again, uh, Paul Marlin, the, the, uh, the, the Alaska polar bear, he's up in Alaska, basically in a subsidized type housing situation. Same thing. And the, and the list goes on and on. And it's kind of going, well, you know, because it's, well, like even Dana, like Dana White, when he, uh, after he, he met me a couple, a couple of different occasions, he's like, uh, Danny goes, uh, out of all the guys, he goes, especially the Pioneer guys, he goes, you are the oldest guy. He goes, but he goes, why is it? It seems like you're the only guy that has his shit together. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, you know, he's a, Dave is quite colorful and he drops a lot of F-bobs right there. Right. And, uh, but, but, uh, you know, and I, and I took that as a compliment back. Well, Dana, well, I, I said, I, you know, I was not that 27 year old guy because he's invincible. I, I was, you know, a 37 year old guy starting in this career knowing that I'm only going to have a short window. I say that because that's the way I looked at it. I'm only going to have a short window in this. Just like you were working with, with professionals, and, you know, I started at age there, that this, that others started, I'm only going to have a short window into it, but, but I took a short window and I, Made it long, but I started my amateur career. Like I said, you know, to, to say that went from 1969 started by 1976 to be the number one recruit at my weight class on a high school basis. I could go to any college I wanted to. And I had the academics, and then by okay, then by 76, and then I go by 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 uh, 19 uh, 90 what 96. I'm uh, the number one cage fighter in the world. I mean, I, you know, you, you look at how many decades have I been doing that? And, and people like, how many matches do you have? I go, well, I've got thousands of matches. I mean, my amateur career, I, I've got to have probably, I'd say between 35, maybe 4,500 4, matches there alone. That's, that, that is very, very impressive. And um, I, I challenge any one of my listeners to find Find a more accomplished uh, guy. Will, <laughs> Eric, one day there will be a movie. I know there will be because I've accomplished too much. Right. But some of the funny part is, I, I know people that that do me way back with in my amateur days are like, and they, they meet me, they, they hear about it, they're like, that, that can't still be Dan Severed. That must be Dan Severed's son. He must have a Dan Severed Junior out there <laughs> because again, I've been again because I've been around. I'm, I'm a I'm a 60-year-old cat, but to see me, I don't look like a 60-year-old cat. I don't move like a 60-year-old cat. Right. I'm still on the I'm still on the mat. I'm still teaching uh, seminars. I, I work with a lot of first responders, law enforcement, corrections, air marshal, border patrol, military, special ops kind of guys. Ironically, I've never been any of the above. Right. But you know, part of it, you know, I have that Doug and Dwight chin, and I have that mustache. I I look like one of them. Sure. But I have I do have that mindset of. Physical mechanics is my gift. I can actually watch watch a wrestler and literally and, 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 and just make a few notes, and I can make just a couple minor corrections. See what they're doing already, and, and play off their strengths and eliminate weaknesses. Whereas most coaches, that coach themselves was really good at this one thing, so they try to make mini me's out of it. When it's like, oh, there's there will only ever be one of me, just like there will only ever be one of you there, Eric. And, right. and, and I just look at what are you naturally doing. And enhance what you're actually doing, and like I said, eliminate weaknesses. Awesome. Sorry, I went off again at one of my teaching escapades. That's all right. That's all right. 
Uh, we really appreciate you joining us today. Guys, catch him this weekend at the Saginaw Sports Card Show. Uh, $35 meet and greet with a photo op. You cannot beat that. want to thank the sponsors of the show, Almighty Tree Care, the Stadium in Bay City, and Curveball Collectibles. Uh, thank you so much for helping, uh, helping me get Dan on the show here uh, this week. We really appreciate it. Make sure you get out there. And when you do, tell him the Fat Pack sent you. That way uh, he, he'll know you heard him on this show. Uh, Mr. Severn, thank you so much for, for joining me. I really appreciate it. I would I would welcome you back anytime you want to come, sir. Well, I uh, will get a chance. I'll, I'll make certain uh, that uh, I get you all your contact information. And, and uh, Eric, I'll, I do. I, I still have a lot of great things that I'm in the process of doing, and uh, and I, I'll, I'll put together press releases from time to time again, and I'll, I'll fire it off to you. And if you want to follow back up with me, we'll do another interview. Let's do it. Awesome. All right, guys, hang tight, and we'll be right back after this break. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Chris from Slipknot, and you're listening to Fat Pack. All right, joining us next uh, right now is uh, a real pleasure for me to reintroduce. They've, this has been about two years since they've been on the show. In fact, I think it's two years to the date. But uh, I said it last time they were on. I will say it again. They are my favorite comedians. The Sklar brothers, Randy and Jason Sklar. Good morning, sirs. How are you doing? Great. Good. Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh First of all, Henderson. Thank you. I, I just had to get that out of the way. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, so I reached out to you guys uh, earlier this week. We are doing a 30 teams in 30 weeks uh, uh, in conjunction with Tops, where we've laid out the best lineups for Major League Baseball teams per by their baseball cards. And number five on our list was the St. Louis Cardinals. And I knew when I saw the Cardinals name uh, that there was only – Two guys I could call to get to talk about this, and it was you two. And you uh, you obliged, and I am so thankful for, for this. Uh, just for my listeners who don't know, give us your background in St. Louis, because you, you you guys grew up in St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. Jake, go ahead. Go ahead, Rand. Oh, okay. So, uh, yeah, we grew up in St. Louis. Uh, grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis. Huge Cardinals fans. Grew up in the 80s, so, you know, we were little kids in the 70s when the Cardinals weren't that good, but then Whitey Herzog came over in 82, and they went to the World Series in 82, 85, 87. They were great in the other years, too. You know, I mean, it was like we were competitive during that whole period. We had some bad years in the 90s, and then Tony La Russa came, and literally, I want to say from, like, 96 until 2014 or 13, we have had an unbelievable run. So, I mean, it's amazing. And I wasn't a fan of Mike Matheny and happy that he's gone. But, you know, I feel like we have a lot of youth and good stuff there going there right now. It's still a great franchise. But I, I feel like the franchise was restored and built really well in the last 20 years. It's such a historic franchise. I was actually surprised that it was number five on the list. I, I thought it could have been easily number three, um, but it wasn't. I think I think the Cubs are going to be number three, which is a, a hated rivalry for, for the Cardinals. strange to me. Like, <laughs> that's weird. That feels like it's weighted in the wrong direction. I mean, it's a great organization, and they're really good, but they're not the same as... It's not the same as the Cardinals. No definitely, way. definitely. The, Car- the Cardinals, the Cardinals are like the San Antonio Spurs of baseball. They're a small market team that, if you're not a fan of them, you hate them. And uh, the people who love them realize that it, they've had an amazing run, a couple of amazing runs. And you also kind of understand that they built their teams 
not necessarily like the Yankees by or the current Red Sox by like buying up all the great players around the league. They built their teams like through their farm system and acquiring maybe one guy or two guys to fulfill, you know, a roster, but really building it from the inside out. They, they, they certainly did. They did it the right way. And uh, growing up here in Dallas, uh, I, I've never really liked the Rangers. I've always kind of gravitated towards National League Baseball in the first place. And the Cardinals were, were that team because um, I didn't like the Astros. So uh, this is kind of a, a, a love thing for me as well. Let's, I want to do this. I want to just jump right into the lineup. I'm going to skip Ozzie Smith and save him for last because uh, you guys have a great story I would love for you to tell about uh Aussies, if you if you don't mind, but um, we'll start with the starting pitcher. We selected Bob Gibson. Do you have any qualms with Bob Gibson being the starting pitcher on this team? No, none at all. He was he is the best pitcher in the history of the Cardinals. I mean, a clutch guy, but he didn't win the World Series against uh, against Detroit, even when he, he won. He, he won. He won in seventy. He won in '67, but he didn't win in. Or he won in '64, but he didn't win in '67. Yeah, he did. Uh-huh. He won in. He won in '67 and lost in '68. There you go. Okay. Won in '67, lost. 68. He won in '64, '67, and lost in '68. Right. He's 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 like they changed the mound because of him. Like right. They will Chamberlain the mound. So like that's how dominant he was. Uh, there's no one a guy like Chris Carpenter was was a was a pretty amazing Cardinal through through their victories, but you know it's just not even the same. Gibson was just Gibson's a Hall of Famer, legendary, one of the best pitchers of all time. I, I think that uh, I think that we got that one right as well. Now catcher is uh, is a is a I don't know if it's a different story. It's Yad, we, we selected Yadier Molina. Molina. I don't know that there's too many other uh, other guys that we could could have come up with here. Todd Zeal comes to mind, uh, but you know that's that, who remembers Todd Zeal. Todd Zeal, yeah, I mean Ted Simmons would have been a good one. He he had over two thousand hits. Was a great Cardinal player. Just played in the wrong era. Like if you talk to if you he, you know it was like seventies. His his golden years were seventy two to like eighty one. You know, and he was really really an amazing hitter and an amazing catcher, but just played on bad Cardinals teams. Mm. Tim McCarver, Tim McCarver was a good catcher uh, for the Cardinals, but but the truth is, Yadier Molina is so good. Like you think you you understand why pitchers came to the Cardinals and just suddenly were good and better than they were on other teams. You got to give that credit to Yadier Molina. He calls the game. He's the quarterback yeah, if you, out there. If you did, yeah, and if you don't believe us, look at like Kyle Loesch. <laughs> who was decent before he came? Decent before he came to the Cardinals. Then he comes to the Cardinals and he's amazing. Like has like a seventeen and four years, some crazy thing like that. And then the next year when he gets traded away or he free agent leaves, he has a terrible year. You're like, oh yeah, Yadier Molina was calling all of your pitches and telling you how to pitch the right way. And so much of it, you you understand with Yadier how much. The catcher is a part of the pitching. That's what's so amazing. That's uh, and 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 like Ozzy Smith, who we'll talk about later, he really decided to improve his offense, and he did. He improved his offense, and he made himself, you know, a really valuable offensive player. Really, 
towards the end of his career, or you know, to the middle of his career. He's like a he's like a two seventy hitter. I mean, it's which as a catcher, that's it. You know, he hits like sixth in our lineup, and he's a he's a clutch hitter. I remember he had that base hit in the All Star game, and with an RBI, the All Star game in St. Louis. I mean, he's 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 a he's clutch a guy. But all in the Hall of Famer, no question. I think so as well. Uh, Yadier, specifically from the collecting side of things, uh, he is a guy that just kind of defies normal price ranges ranges for us because he's a catcher. They don't typically get much run uh, in, in secondary market value, but he is a guy that you like. You can't touch an autograph of his for under thirty five, forty bucks every time. So he's a guy that not only is great on the field, but he's good for collectors as well. Um, we're going to move along here to first base. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I think you guys would agree Albert Pujols is a lock here, which we have him here at the first base. Do you have uh, any any other first baseman that you might want to throw in there? Uh, maybe Mark McGuire, but did he play much first, first base for them? McGuire is like a mix because he wasn't really a true first baseman. I feel like they moved him there once they're like, he can't get to the outfield balls. Uh, I think Keith Hernandez was an unbelievable first baseman if we would have kept him and didn't and didn't trade him to the uh, Mets. To the Mets, yeah. He was really an unbelievable, like truly one of the best hitting first basemen we've ever seen, but it doesn't compare to Pujols. When, when Pujols was traded, or not traded, when he decided to, you know, as a free agent, go to, to Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, I was... We were really devastated because we felt like that's a guy like Musial. He could have been a modern-day Musial. He could have been the guy who the statue was of him outside in front, and he was just the guy who stayed with one one team the whole way. Yeah. Because we're like, really, how much, how much more money do you need? Plus, we live in Southern California. Extra $40 million out here is like, it's less than what you would get in St. Louis. So it just blew me away that... He just decided to make money over that was was super hurtful. That not take away from the fact that his run post McGuire because remember like McGuire left and we all thought oh my god we're never going to be good again and then in two thousand one Pujols it was like ten years in a row that he hit over thirty home runs over a hundred RBIs like hit over three hundred the guy was just that ten year run is is untouchable absolutely. Uh, all right, no no arguments for me. Second base, Rogers Hornsby. Uh, obviously, well before yeah. both of our times, but I, I don't think all of our times. Do you? There's no argument here either, right? None. No, he, he was, can't argue with that. He was one of the greatest Cardinals of all time, and I mean, I think his card fetches so much. His rookie card or something fetches so much money. He just was. He was just one of those players. It's so funny when you think of like a second baseman giving you that much production and you know being that big of a star. It's usually not a second baseman. It's usually a third baseman, a shortstop, a you know center fielder, left fielder, outfielder, maybe a catcher. But the second baseman is kind of the last place you look for that level of production. But he was just insane. Absolutely. I mean, the only guy who would even the only guy who would even come close to him, him would maybe be Colton Long. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, the only thing that can rival Rogers Hornsby is Tommy Hers perm. Tommy Hers yeah. perm. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, third baseman. When I think Cardinals, I, I a lot of big third basemen don't come to mind, but we have Ken Boyer here, uh, play, played in the 50s and 60s. Do you, do you know much about Ken Boyer? 
Yeah, we did. And he was a really good player for the car. Oh, lost your head. Uh-oh. Can you hear me? I can hear you, sir. Yeah. So, yeah, he was a good player for the Cardinals. He did a lot. He was a coach, okay. third base coach. He was a third base coach for the Cardinals for a while. Uh, yeah, he was great. He was on the 50s and 60s, the teams that won in the 60s. Uh, so, I mean, I, there hasn't really been. I mean, who is it third? Scott Rowland, maybe? Scott Rowland was a third baseman that was a special third baseman for the Cardinals. Right. You know, in the 80s, it was Ken Reed. But, like, I wouldn't yeah, really. But what, put... what about, I would, hey, what about Mike Shannon? Mike Shannon was a pretty good player in the 60s for. Did he play third? Yep. Did he play yes, th- he third did. or short? Yes, he did. Yeah. Third. Uh, I third. Think... He was a really good. Go ahead. He was good, and he's now the announcer for the Cardinals, so I feel like he's secured his, like, you know, name in the lore of. But, but I, I think third base is a little harder to call. Like, I don't think you could go wrong with Boyer. I mean, an argument could be made for Mike Shannon. But you know, I think Boyer works. We're not going to argue with that. Uh, with with Boyer, I, it came down to he, he was a, the '64 MVP. He was on 11 All Star teams yeah. and won five Gold Gloves. So uh, it was yeah, he, 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 yeah, exactly. All right, uh, shortstop obviously is Ozzy Smith. We can talk about him here, but I want to save this story if you guys don't mind. I mean, this is plain and simple Ozzy Smith's position. No one else even comes close, right? Right. He's just the greatest defensive shortstop in the history of the game. I mean, some people would say Omar Vizquel, maybe, and but he's the greatest defensive shortstop ever to play the game. And if you are, I'm saying the greatest out of any in the Hall of Fame. Like, there are a lot of people in the Hall of Fame that belong in the Hall of Fame, and they're amazing. He's the best of the best of the best. And also, like, a great guy. And, you know, like Jay said, worked on his hitting. Mm-hmm truly worked on his hitting and in the end became a great hitter and some of his greatest highlights are hitting the home run off a Neaton viewer. You know, right. the, that's one of his best highlights ever. Go crazy, folks. Go crazy. Go crazy. Left field, Lou Brock. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. <laughs> Lou Brock, no Lou doubt. Brock was, Lou Brock was so devastating as a player for other teams because he'd get on first and he'd be on third. Like <laughs> he he stole so many bases and he was on a lot. He had three thousand hits. I think he's the last Cardinal to have three thousand hits. Am I wrong to say that? I believe you are correct. No, he might be. Yeah. And so the truth of Blue Brock is, Jay and I were at our grandmother's apartment in St. Louis and we heard his three thousand we listening to it on the radio. I mean it's so classic and so beautiful. I remember we were like being babysat by our grandmother and we were in her back little room and we were listening on the radio about and I just remember it so much the call Jack Buck. It's like off Dennis Lamp off Lamp's leg. He hit it off his leg oh, and no. the line shot back to the pitcher off his leg and, and then made first base and, and you know, the crowd was going berserk. It's a great call. Great call by a great announcer. And then, of course, Lou Brock was 3,000 hit. And then he set the stole, the career stolen base record, and he stole 105 until bases. Ricky, I mean, yeah, I mean, until, Ricky Henderson, until Ricky Henderson, he was the greatest. Yeah. greatest. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, all right, Centerfield is a guy who is more known for changing modern free agency than anything else, but he played... 12 seasons for the Cardinals, Mr. Kurt Flood. Yeah, I, I don't know if I... 
I don't know he's if I good. agree with this one. Okay. Yeah, he's a great player, and he did a lot for free agency, and he changed the game for the Cardinals. But how you don't put Willie McGee there is beyond yeah. me. I'm sorry. I mean, there's no Willie way. McGee, no one, yeah, there's. Willie, go ahead. Willie McGee was just unreal. Willie McGee was a speedster, unbelievably defensive player. Won the batting title in 1985, MVP in 1985. I mean, I don't know. Kurt Flash. Helped them as a rookie. As a rookie, helped them win the World Series in '82. The first World Series they'd won in two. In you know, in the '80s they had won nothing. In the '70s they hadn't won since the '60s. They he he hit two home runs on a, in a road game in Milwaukee, and then stole the home run from Gorman Thomas in that game by jumping over the wall and making the catch. The guy was, he was clutched through all the 80s. He was, he was an unbelievable Cardinal. I would I, mean, have I don't know how his numbers, I don't know how his numbers stack up against floods in terms of career hits and RBIs, but, you know, I just think Willie was a more dynamic player. I would have to agree with you. Yep. Uh, thankfully, I did not have final call on this list, so, uh, you know, flood wasn't my wasn't my choice, but uh, we'll put we'll put McGee in there in, in our our lineup that we're making here now. Uh, right field, and this is a this is a no brainer. Stan usual. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, easily the best the best Cardinal ever to play. Like, he's the best. He was. He's our Ted Williams. He's our Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle or you know whatever you want to call him. The Yankees had so many, but he's our he's the best player ever to be a Cardinal. I mean, 3,600 hits. Uh, he even going to like going to the service and missing like two years for mm-hmm. being in the army. He had just uh, like what does he have? Like 400 and something home runs. 475 home runs. 475 home runs. So almost 500 home runs. I want to say 36, 33 or something like 36, 35 or something like what? How many home runs? How many hits does he have? Uh, the hit, I don't have the hits right in front of me, but he does have 24 all-star appearances, and he led the Cardinals to three World Series titles. Yeah. So. I mean, this guy is, I was going to say, like, if Pujols stayed, Pujols would have been the second greatest Cardinal ever behind Stan Musial. You just can't beat it. You just can't beat him. His number of hits, the number of seasons he played, the all-star appearances, the three World Series titles, mm. He just is the greatest, and then stayed in St. Louis and was like the St. Louis figure. And every time he would, you know, he made, I think he made St. Louis this great destination for players to come because he was still around. He hung around. Yeah, he, he opened a restaurant in St. Louis called Stan Musial and Biggie's, and he would be at the restaurant, and he just was around. He was very much around in St. Louis, and... You know, lived lived into the '90s, late '90s. Uh, would know. always come to get would be at games, and they'd bring him out on the you know little cart, and he'd ride around and wave to people with his red Hall of Fame jacket on. I mean, he was just the best Cardinal out of all those Cardinals in your lineup. He's he's the tippy top. There's a reason there's a statue of him. You know, I mean, he's he's ahead of Gibson. Gibson was awesome. And Gibson was the best. He's probably the second best. And Brock is right up there too. But Musial was the best. No, no complaints here at all. He's also the uh, he won a, a presidential medal of freedom in 2011, which is uh, 
you know, yeah. you, you don't hear a lot incredible. of that. That's incredible. All right, uh, utility player. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, that's another reason why Obama's great. Anyway, oh, go ahead. Of now. course, of course. Uh, utility player, we could have went with uh, just about any of the guys that we left off the list here, but uh, we went with Enos Slaughter, uh, 1952 yeah. uh, big country. You, you, you played 13 seasons for the uh, for the Cardinals. I don't think we could have went wrong there. Uh, we disagree. Okay. Best, right. utility player, best utility player ever to play for the Cardinals was Jose Oquendo. <laughs> there is no question. He was, he pitched, he pitched, I don't know if Slaughter pitched. He's, I mean, Jose Oquendo struck out Deion Sanders, a great hitter, looking backwards K. I mean, he pitched innings, and he threw a hook, and he played, he caught, he played all nine positions in one season, played 163 games, has more postseason home runs than Ted Williams. I mean, wow. he's, he. He's the best. He is the best of the best, and we believe belongs in the Hall of Fame as a utility player. He's the best utility player ever to play the game. He was a guy that Tony Larusa, when we were doing a special to try and get Jose Oquendo into the Hall of Fame, Tony Larusa was like, "If your team has an Oquendo, it means that in the postseason you can carry an extra pitcher, a specialized pitcher, on your rotation because Oquendo can do so much. He fills the gaps." That like, and you're so confident with him that there's zero drop off that you can carry a, another pitcher. So I mean, he just, what he brings to a team is incredible. And yes, Enos Big Country Slaughter was great. The other thing about Slaughter is apparently he was like a massive racist. Okay. So like, I can't, I can't, I can't. I know that's like, yeah, Ty Cobb like killed a guy and whatnot, and he's in the all him. I get it. And people were different back then, but I just feel like we we have to say Jose Oquendo is far and away our choice. Do you agree, Jay? Yes. It's not even close. It's not even close. And Okendo stayed with the organization. He's one of the best coaches. He's an unbelievable third base coach. He's been helping the team after his career and being aggressive on the base pass and getting guys home. He is it is not even close. His fielding percentage was unbelievable. He was he could he could go into any position and you didn't have any drop off anywhere on the field. And he was not a big guy, but he, he had a lot of clutch hits. He was, he was it's not even close. There, there, it, I can't even entertain anyone for those there, Kendo. Okay. Uh, you, have, you have changed my mind. We're gonna put a, we'll put a Kendo there. Uh, last position, uh, relief pitcher, Jason Isringhausen. Isringhausen. Yeah, this is hard. This is hard. I mean, I loved Isringhausen. He was great. I just, you know, I don't know how many years he did it, but, like, you, you can't forget Bruce Suter. Bruce Suter, mm. for us, was amazing. I forgot Bruce, Suter was long. Bruce Suter was essentially the first, like, Goose Gossage and Bruce Suter were, like, the first, and Raleigh Fingers, they were kind of the first closers. And Bruce Suter introduced the split-finger fastball into baseball. That was Bruce Suter's pitch. So he, he, he changed pitching. Guy didn't throw super hard, but no one could hit his split finger fastball. Nobody could hit it. And I don't know how many saves he had in 82 when they won the World Series, but he was on the mound. And as soon as he hit the mound, they won. I mean, that's just how it was. If you got to Bruce Suter, it was over. And I remember countless times, countless times Bruce Suter would come into a game, bases would be loaded, there'd be one out. And he's got to say, like a one run lead. And I can't even tell you the amount of times he got guys to hit into double plays. Because his ball just, they, his sinker, it would sink down. He'd get a ground ball. Maybe it'd come back to him. He'd go home into first. I mean, he was just, 
he was lights out in in the greatest way possible. Now, I, again, I don't know the longevity of Suter. Like, I just don't know how far he, how long he was a Cardinal and, and did that. So, like, that's a little hazy, and maybe Isringhausen did it longer than him. But I think you got to consider Bruce Suter. And then there was a big, Lee Smith was a big part of the Cardinals' right. uh, run in the 90s. That's right. Lee Smith was, like, just an unbelievable reliever. I mean, he got to, like, whatever, 500 saves or 450 saves or whatever. Whatever he had, he did with the Cardinals. Now, Lee Smith was... A much he was he was probably at the height of his career when he was on the Cubs in the eighties, but he was incredible on the Cardinals. So I mean, I think you got to consider those two in the in the same mix as that. But those guys were those those. I think it's hard to choose between those three: Lee Smith, Bruce Suter, or Isringhausen. And so you know, we can't say definitively the same way we said with Okendo. Or, or even Willie McGee in center field. But I would definitely take a look at those guys and, and compare their stats because I don't have them in front of me. But I would definitely look at Bruce Suter. Definitely going to take a look at that. You guys broke that down like I knew that you would. Uh, like I said at the beginning <laughs> of the call, that there was there was only two guys I needed to call, and it was you. So uh, thank you so much for, for bringing your your knowledge of the St. Louis Cardinals uh, to, to the podcast. I really appreciate sure. it. It, uh, it was a lot of fun. Sure. Now, speaking of podcasts, uh, you guys have probably what is my favorite podcast with Dumb People Town with uh, Dan Van Kirk. And uh, you have your new sh- your new show, which is kind of an old show, of you from the Cheap Seats. Uh, tell us about yeah. tell us about both of those. So Dumb People Town is like a kind of a true crime podcast about the dumbest people in the world. They're all from Florida. Stupid things like yeah, a lot from Florida. <laughs> You know, like a woman who wants to marry her chandelier or a guy who gets into a fight with his own reflection in a bar window. You know, the world is getting dumber, and we believe it's just happening at an astronomical rate, like more faster than global warming. It's just getting dumb. A dumb wave is coming over our world. And the only way to fight back is through comedy and try and understand why are they acting this way. And by the way, dumb is winning in the world, too. That's what's crazy as well. So this is, feels like our only way to fight back is with a smart sword, try and swashbuckle it out of there. So with our buddy Dan Van Kirk and usually a guest like John Hamm or Tiffany Haddish or Keegan-Michael Key or Kumail Nanjiani or, you know, just great young comedians who you may not know on our mini-episodes, we break down these stories and just have a blast. John Glazer from John Glazer Loves Gear and Delocated, he was our guest this, this week. And we just have a blast doing it it's really been incredible it's like you know there are true crime podcasts which talk about like murder and whatnot we never go that far mm-hmm. these are like the 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 absolute dumbest crimes ever committed <laughs> and we get them sent to us by our fans and we just break them down so that's dumb people town and it's been really it's been amazing how our podcast network starburns has grown that podcast uh, to be just a powerhouse podcast for us, and we always have fun. We we go into the booth. We have no idea what's going to come of it, and it just magic happens every time. So that's that. And then View from the Cheap Seats is what Scarborough Country ultimately morphed into, and we've sort of changed format on it a little bit. But you know, it is this is what's happened in the week of sports. We take whatever is the biggest story in the world of sports that week, 
and give our take on it, a take that you're not going to hear on ESPN. You're not going to hear it, you know, you're just not going to hear it in the, in the sports networks that are afraid to actually take on the bigger entities and whatnot. We're unfettered, and we can do it exactly the way we – and we like to do it with humor as well. But, you know, this week we're going to sort of take a look at as the, you know, as the baseball playoffs kind of line up, who do we think baseball wants to be in the World Series and, and why? And, and, and you don't think that doesn't have anything to do with it. It has a lot to do with it. And so, you know, I mean, you don't think that, uh, baseball is like freaking out if it's a Milwaukee Houston World Series. They're going to lose everyone on the coast if that happens. So yes, the only way Houston can come in the World Series is if the Dodgers are in it as well. So it is a fascinating time. Baseball is biting their nails freaking out that it doesn't be the you know that it isn't this mid middle of the country swath for this baseball thing for the world series but it is fascinating so we'll talk about that and then we have a guest on anybody we had ozzy smith on we had uh, bob costas on we've had uh we just had paul shirley amazing guy played in the nba for a while told some killer stories about playing in the nba and playing in spain and uh you know Thomas Jones running back for uh, Virginia and the Bears and the Jets and just you know we we get deep into the their their attitudes of sports and then comedians that are great sports fans we sort of dig in with them and so it's a really fun show so we love that I love I love them both I, I listen to them regularly and uh, something I listened to last night again was uh, was Hipster Ghost and God you guys killed it on this but there there are two stories that that I want I want you to break down for me. Uh, First is uh, how your son has uh, compared Pokemon cards to your baseball card collection, and then yeah. uh, then the Ozzy Smith story, if you will. Yeah, so my son was super into Pokemon, and I didn't understand the show, and then I watched an episode of the show, and I was like, I'm going to call Child Protective Services on myself. I mean, it's basically <laughs> like futuristic cockfighting like it's so bizarre and i'm like this is like why michael vick went to prison and my son's getting into it and he was into the cards first you know the cards and they're like basically like trading cards you know monsters on them and they have statistics like how much energy how much damage how much life is in each monster and so i didn't know what to do because i wanted to get him off of pokemon because i was a little terrified by the show and i asked randy what to do and Randy and said, I was like, I was like, you yeah. got to wean, go back, get our baseball cards. You got to wean him off, make the baseball cards the methadone to his Pokemon heroin. You'll wean him <laughs> off. Right? So I, so I go back and I get my cards from St. Louis, all our old cards, and I and I give them to my son. But because Pokemon cards came first, he starts going through the cards, but he starts looking at baseball cards as if they're Pokemon cards. And I swear to God, he pulls out a card, Daryl Strawberry. He's like, Daddy, what's his damage? <laughs> I was like, let's watch a 30 for 30 about Daryl Strawberry and then you'll learn about what his damage is. Okay. I mean, cocaine. What do you say? Cocaine is his damage. Cocaine in the 80s and then it was hookers and then in the 90s and now it's just a blind faith in God. Um, that is Daryl's damage at this point. But it was, it's really funny how cards, how I went back to our youth to pull what I thought was the safe thing, and then he pulls Daryl Strawberry out of the hat. That's Hilarious. that's so funny. It was it was classic, absolute classic comedy. Yeah, and Ozzy, we'll tell a truncated version of Ozzy. You got to listen to Hipster Ghost to hear the whole story. Please go listen um, to it, and you can you can pick that up on iTunes or Amazon Music or however you however you listen to your streaming music and stuff. Hipster Ghost, um, but 
the the basically uh, you know when we were kids, Ozzy Smith opened up a restaurant, kind of like we were talking about Stan Musial. He opened up a restaurant called Ozzy's, and we just asked our parents every day if we could go there, and they're like, "No, it's overpriced chicken fingers." And we were like, "Are you joking? He's going to be there." Our dad's like, "He's not going to be there. He's on the Cardinals, you idiots." And he's got a job that he where he plays shortstop. I don't know if you know that. We're like, yeah, oh yeah, but we were just like every day he's going to be there. Finally, we broke our parents down. They took us there. We get there, and he's there, and he's there. We are right, and they are wrong. And as like eleven, twelve year old kids, we were just shoving it in their faces, like we can do anything. And I don't know if that pissed our dad off or whatever, that we were right and he was wrong, but Ozzy's like going around to the tables was the coolest thing ever. And we're, you know, right in that age where our parents can embarrass us like nobody's business. And Ozzy comes over to our table. We reach down to get our gloves and the Sharpies for him to sign because we were just all set. We were so cocky he was going to be there. We brought Sharpies. That is confidence right there. Right there. And he uh, comes over to our table. Our dad has got the bread basket. He says, can we get some more rolls, man? To Ozzy Smith. We're like, are you joking? And so it just was a very embarrassing moment. And then Ozzy Smith, like 25 years later, we're performing at a cancer benefit in St. Louis. And our dad, who sadly passed away from cancer, was there, though, that night. And Ozzy was there. We told that story in front of both of them. And Ozzy just being the true champion of a human being that he was thought it was so funny that we told that story in front of everybody and then this is how great he was he went into the kitchen of the casino we were performing at and got a basket of rolls and brought it over to my dad and was like here you go mr Scott. here are those rolls that you ordered he lo- it was so brilliant then our dad just looked up to him and said um where's the butter <laughs> he just like asked him where the butter was and we were so embarrassed, and it just was such a great moment. And But now that we have kids, we're like, God, that was really brilliant that Dad hung on to his anger for that long. I mean, it probably kept him alive an extra couple of months. That anger that we were right. We were right when he, we were 12 and he was wrong, and Ozzy Smith was the reason. But it was truly, truly amazing, and just Ozzy's such a good dude. And again, we had him on. We, we sat down and talked to him for an hour and 15 minutes for our podcast. He gave, was so generous with his time. He is a really old school guy, old school, like doesn't like certain things that are going on in baseball. And, and personally, I think the Cardinals should be more welcoming to that guy in terms of letting him in the organization. He should have a bigger role in that organization mm-hmm. because he's one of the greats of all time. I, again, I put him in that same, if we're going to talk Musial, you know, Brock, Gibson, I would throw Ozzy in that mix too, because those guys were the best of the best of the best. It is he is absolutely should have a bigger role in in that organization. All right, two last things, and we'll get you out of here. What's poop talk? Because it's brilliant, and I want my listeners to know about it. Poop talk is a, yeah. Poop talk is a documentary we did uh, that we helped produce and that we're in. Um, it's really just us interviewing a lot of comedians, a few scientists a few psychologists, to try and get at the issue of why this talking about pooping and talking about something that is a very common function that connects all of us as people is something that we as a society just don't do. Why is it a taboo when we've gone so much farther with other things like sexuality and uh, violence and other things that 
certainly violence, you know, where is so much more acceptable. It's so much more acceptable to like have violence in a, on a television show on like CSI, like on network television. And yet we can't talk about pooping. And why is that? And so we kind of get into that by talking to what we consider to be, you know, I guess low rent or amateur anthropologists. Uh, I would say high rent, but amateur anthropologists, which is what comedians are, mm-hmm. a lot of comedians, as comedians, we study human behavior and we look for things that are interesting in it and we reflect it back to crowds. And that's how comedians connect with audiences, whether it's sharing their own experience or trying to understand, you know, the larger human experience. And there's a lot of that in this movie. And it, you know, it's reminiscent a little bit of, uh, of the aristocrats. The aristocrats. It's people telling, you know, long stories and hilarious, you know, embarrassing stories around their own pooping nightmares mixed in with uh, comedians trying to understand how their attitudes came to be or how societal attitudes came to be. And there are great people in it, like Pete Holmes and Kumail Nanjiani and Aisha Tyler and Eric Stone Street and Jonah Ray and we're in it and Nick Swartzen. It's just uh, Rob Corddry. It's an amazing grouping of really funny comedians who are thoughtful. It's a highbrow take on a lowbrow subject, and it's like 80 to 70 minutes, I think, long, 70 it's minutes long. 70 minutes. If you're like, hey, I want to see something fun, and it's a documentary, and you want to laugh about a documentary, there are so few documentaries you can laugh on. Rent it. I mean, just get it on. You can get it on Amazon. You can definitely get it on iTunes. It's just fun. For my money... There is no funnier story in the whole 70 minutes than Brad Williams sharing his story about having oh a life. Oh, my It is absolutely uh, yeah. comedy gold. It's Brad, the, Williams, it, Brad Williams is the best, and he wasn't even going to be in the documentary. We were, record, we were interviewing people at, uh, at the improv, and I didn't know that he had an unbelievable story. He's there, and he said, what are you guys filming? And, we're, and we told him what the documentary was, and I was like, do you have a good story? And he's like, I have the story. Yes. And we were like, can you hang out for 10 minutes? And he said, sure. He sat down and he told that story, and we were like, this is the centerpiece. This is like almost the centerpiece story of the entire Yeah, it was, it was amazing. His and, his and Kira Sultanovich talking about emigrating from Russia when she was like a three-year-old kid. Those two stories were just remarkable, amazing, beautiful. They're all awesome. It, it's a really fun, fun movie that is, how do we deal with a difficult subject? So it's called Poop Talk, and you can get it. Highly recommend that you check it out. It's it's just fun. It's absolutely a blast. All right, we're going to get you out of here, but before we do, tell us your upcoming dates. I know that you got uh, see you're in Hollywood or you're in California and Texas coming up soon, correct? Right, right. So we've got um, yeah some dates around here in in Los Angeles coming up. A couple of big time benefits and things that we're doing in the in the next couple of weeks. But actually this weekend we fly to uh in, in two days. I don't know when this podcast drops, but today. this weekend on the thirteenth it drops today. Yeah. Yes sir. Yeah. Okay. So then this, this if you're in Minneapolis and you're listening to this or St. Paul, we're gonna be on the premiere episode on of Live From Here, which is kind of like the next iteration of Prairie Home Companion. Uh Chris Thiel he, uh, the, you know, the mandolin player, he kind of hosts it. It's, it's, and I believe Tom Papa's involved, but Dirty Projectors is on that show. We're going to do a little stand-up. So we do that on Saturday. We'll be in St. Paul. Come back, and then two weeks from now, uh, we're in Phoenix at the uh, All Things Comedy Festival. We're going to do a live Dumb People Town at their pop-up podcast studio, which I believe is 
downtown close to Stand Up Live, right, Jay? I believe yeah. it's there. And then the, that's on Thursday night, the 26th, 25th, maybe? 26th then on, on yeah, 25th. And 26th on Friday night, we do um, two shows. We're going to do Headline, uh, the Tempe Improv. So if you're there, please come out. The Tempe Improv is going to be awesome. We love that place. Do a headlining set of comedy there. And then later that night, we do this great show called the Goddamn Comedy Jam, where we tell a story and sing a song with a band. It's just a blast. So uh, definitely come check us in there. And then two weeks after that, we're in Austin, Texas. We'll be at the great Cap City Comedy Club Wednesday, the 7th of November through the 10th, which is that Saturday. Um, and, Jay, I believe Aaron Uris is going to feature for us. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So Aaron Uris, who is a great comedian from Denver, we just worked with him in Denver. Uh, so the whole show will be awesome. Great comedy scene down in Austin, and we really want to see people out and try and sell out some of those shows. So that is the 7th through the 10th of November. Then we're back in St. Louis doing a huge benefit for Project Wake Up, which is at Chaminade uh, Theater, Chaminade uh, Preparatory High School, in uh, on the Saturday after Thanksgiving on November 24th. And so that's going to be a really great event. We're going to be doing stand-up. Some Tim Convey, great stand-up, who does a radio show there. He's going to host the night, and we'll do stand-up. It's going to be really fun for a great cause. A lot of people are like, what do I do on the Saturday after Thanksgiving? If you're in St. Louis, we got you come it. To, we got you. You come to this, and you'll have a great time. So we got that. And then in the new year, I mean, we have, if you go to supersquares.com, you can look at all of our dates. But coming up in the new year, oh, actually. Actually, uh, December December twentieth, we're going to be in Burbank, California, doing a headline lining set in L.A., which is rare at Flappers Comedy Club, which is yes. a great comedy great comedy club there. So we'll be there doing a headlining set on the twentieth, and then uh, end of end of uh, January, we're in San Diego at the Great American Comedy Company for the last weekend in January, and then two weeks later, we're in Portland, Oregon at the Helium Comedy Club, which is awesome. Uh, you know, we may be in Madison, Wisconsin at the beginning of March. We're back in Austin for the Moon Tower Comedy Festival end of April. In June, we've got a great show, uh, that we'll be doing at the West Siloam Springs, uh, at the, um, casino down there, West Siloam Springs. It's a great comedy venue. So lots of stuff. Go to supersclars.com, check out our tour dates. And, uh, and that's the best way to catch us. But hopefully you, you can come out and see us if we're near you. Awesome. Uh, to my listeners, you get you guys interact with me all the time and ask me who my favorite comedians are and what podcasts I listen to. This show, I gave you both of those things. Please go check out the Sklar Brothers <laughs> if they are near you. Uh, you guys are, again, in Austin, November 7th. I fly to Toronto on November 8th. I am seriously considered driving down to Austin to see you, then drive back up to Dallas to go to Toronto. So. Oh, my God. <laughs> you got to do that. We'd love to see you. Take a picture. Post it up. Let's do that. Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, thanks for listening this week. And until next week, just keep listening. Cue the Drake. Thank you.